Hello, this is Janet from JanetSandberg.com, and you're listening to the Phoenix Wisdom Podcast, the weekly show that talks to peers and professionals who open up about their darkest moments when they felt like ending it all, why they didn't, and how they transformed their lives in order to triumph over the darkness and despair. Please remember to subscribe if you'd like to hear more inspiring stories. Hello, I am your host, Janet Sandberg, and welcome to another episode of the Phoenix Wisdom Podcast. Today, we are joined by my first Australian guest, who is Simon, oh, I didn't ask you how to say your last name, Rene? Rene, yes, one of the most common mispronounced surnames (laughs) in the world, so you did pretty good. Thanks. So I'm going to give it over to you to tell the people more about you so I don't mess it up. No worries, Janet. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate your time today to hear my story and and love what you're doing with the podcast. So keep it up. It's it's a tough thing to be a podcaster. I'm I'm a podcaster myself, so I know how hard it is to show up every single week for our our audience. But thank you for having me. So I'm a social worker based in the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, Australia. Um, I'm a I'm a dad. I'm a husband. Um, I've got my own private practice as a social worker, and I work in the therapy in the mental health and disability space in the therapy world. So I'm really passionate about that work. And that work comes from essentially my lived experience of mental illness. Um, when I was eight years old, I developed obsessive compulsive disorder, which remained undiagnosed until I was 28 years old. And so through that period, I had also bouts of depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, and found alcohol in my teens as well. So that's been a big part of my life for 20 five years roughly and it's only last year when I turned 40 that I decided to kick that habit and became sober so there's lots that's happened along the journey but that's essentially my journey is is one of lived experience and then turning that lived experience or the pain of that experience into my purpose so it's the fuel for my passion to work specifically with men and boys to to work through their mental health you know and disability challenges and to realize that they don't just have to survive, but they can thrive in life as well. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for what you're doing too. Um, and yeah, like you said, you have a podcast so you can reach more people than just those that are local with your practice. So amazing. Uh, and yeah, you just skimmed over like a whole <laughs> lot of stuff. <laughs> so uh, yeah, gosh, I can't imagine... I mean, I can imagine being undiagnosed for that long, but yeah, it. I'm sure that in itself just takes a toll. Like you just don't know what's going on. Why am I this way? There must be something wrong with me. Yeah, um, absolutely. I guess if we put some context to it. So as a social worker, I do love context. So mm-hmm. I grew up in the 80s, 90s and noughties. That was the time that I was a child and then a teen and then a young adult. And in that period of time, so... I didn't live on the Sunshine Coast. I lived in a place called Adelaide, which is a different state of Australia. And then lived in the northern suburbs of Adelaide. So this is a a demographic area that is low socioeconomic. That's lots of welfare. That's lots of single parent households. The work that people do are very much blue collar um, Mm -hmm. if they are working at all. A lot of unemployment. 
And during the 80s, 90s and 90s, we didn't talk about mental health. No. You know, particularly no, where no. I lived as well. And so the 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 role models that I had were what I watched on TV. So, you know, I had two older brothers and a little brother as well, but the older brothers dictated what we watched on D- TV. And, and that was things like The Terminator. It was things like Die Hard. It was things like Rambo. So these hyper-masculine movies right. that had the main character of walking through walls of fire or getting stabbed or getting shot and still surviving and saving the day. And so what we watched on TV was telling me that to be a boy and to be a man was to be someone who was tough. And this was reinforced by my my dad and my older brothers, this hyper-masculine household. We don't talk about our feelings. We don't know, you know, if we're feeling sad, we don't cry, all these types of things. Mm-hmm. Again, reinforced in the sports field. So we're a sports mad family. In fact, Australians are sports mad in, in general. Yeah. And so when I'm on the sports field, particularly the football field, if I got hit and I got knocked down and I got hurt, I dare not show any sort of emotion because that would make me the target of the next big hit. Mm-hmm. And all my players, my the the fellow teammates or my coach would say, just suck it up, get on, move on. We've got to win the game. That's more important than how you're feeling. And so, and then that was also reinforced in the schoolyard as well right. with my friends, with different teachers, you know, if, with bullies. If you if you showed any sort of weakness, you would be targeted. And so, all these things were impacting the way that I knew how to be a boy. And so, to develop OCD at eight years old, and I had to retrace my OCD as an adult to learn how, how early it presented. Mm-hmm. Um, but once that happened, I didn't know how to talk about it. And I was also a bit scared to talk about it because I didn't want anyone to say that I was weak or I was being a girl um, or anything like that. I just wanted to be a boy and I wanted to be a man because that's what I knew that was acceptable from, from a household and society's you know, standing. And so once that developed at eight years old and it progressed in my teens when, particularly when mum and dad separated. So we became that single parent household in that area. And I felt this overwhelming need to be the boy or to be the man of the house as a 13, 14 year old. And nobody put that expectation on me, but me, because that was also a thing back then is that you had a man of the household and it was usually your mate's dad or, or an uncle that was staying there. But all of a sudden I was that person and so that's when it really ramped up and to the point where it was almost out of control internally, but externally, you would not know that I was really struggling. And it, mm-hmm. in fact, this was the period of time when I first experienced suicidal ideation because I'd become so tired of having to manage my OCD thoughts and then also the behaviors that came with that. And then depression was coming in, anxiety was coming in. Yeah. I didn't know how to manage that. And so there was nights where I would, you know, bury my head in the pillow and and hope that I didn't wake up. Mm-hmm. And this continued throughout my life. And and even it continued into my adult, young adult years as well. That fear that I had, that need to be safe and feel safe and, and all that type of stuff. And then the suicidal ideation kind of died away, but I, the depression was still there. The OCD was still there. The anxiety was still there. To the point of when I did get diagnosed in twenty at twenty eight, I you know I took it upon myself to go and see a GP and and see a therapist, and it just felt so relieving to go okay this is what's going on I mm-hmm. now have some some labels that I can associate these thoughts and feelings and behaviors towards. Now I can do something about it, 
but in the typical man style, I didn't do anything about <laughs> yeah. it. I did go see a couple therapists, but it, but it felt like we were just talking and nothing was healing. I've expected the magic wand response. Right. That didn't come. So I, I kept drinking and I thought drinking was okay, but I've since come to realize that I was just suppressing everything. Just numbing. To, yeah. Yeah. I was using it to numb and I was using it to feel normal and, to take away the the pain, to slow my brain down because it goes so fast mm. that I just can't mm-hmm. control it unless I'm doing something like that. But, you know, and then I turned into a dad. So in my late 30s became a dad. And this is where suicidal ideation came back. It was it was these thoughts of, you know, what what would happen if I drive the car off the road? You know, and 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 you're looking at these trees or these these posts or whatever as you're driving past them, and that scared the hell out of me. That was like, whoa, that is not cool. I'm a dad. I'm a loving dad. I love my family. I don't want to do that type of stuff. And and I was really scared to talk about that one. And I've, in fact, I've never really talked about the teenage one either. I've kind of brushed over that 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 situation. But as an adult, to think and want to share what's going on in my head, but really scared to, because I was worried about what would, would my wife say? Would she leave me? Would would she kick Mm. me out the house? Would she take the kids away? Would child protection come and take my kids away? Would I be institutionalized? And those are some heavy thoughts. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So they're heavy thoughts on top of the heavy thoughts. On top of the heavy thoughts, on top of the dark thoughts. Yeah. And I, and I was really scared to talk about that because it also coincided with a period of my life where sharing my story was really important to me to be my true authentic self because I didn't want to hide behind the, the the mask of mental illness. And so I did get the courage to tell my wife and initially she was a bit worried and scared. Of course. But then she, then she came around and goes, okay, we need to talk to your GP. And so I went to see my doctor and and I was really scared to tell him what was going on. And this was this was a moment of, of gold for me. He, even though I'm a therapist and I've been working towards my, my social work degree as well, I wasn't really across this thing called intrusive thoughts. And he put it in a, in a way that this was just an intrusive thought coming in and it was just going to float out. And most people would ignore them. But because of my OCD, I was also worried that it was manifesting in a new way that I was going to start avoiding things like driving my car as the right. behavior to, to, to manage that. And so he, he just, you know, he put me at ease and, and, and I felt okay to talk about it then. I'm like, okay, I can talk about this thing. Intrusive thought is not necessarily a desire to want to end my life or end the life of somebody else. Right. It's just a thought. It's just a thought. And, mm-hmm. and so I felt a lot of comfort with that and then did some extra work with my, my therapist as well. So it's popped up a few times in different ways. And as I get older and, and, more reflective on my life it's it's enabled me to to look at things in a different way my mental health in a different way or suicidal ideation in a different way and also bring that across into my practice as a therapist as well if someone's t- talking to me about their story of of mental illness or or suicidality or anything like that we can talk about it as if it's a normal thing and just and take away exactly. the stigma and shame that is often associated with these very heavy topics yeah well, that's the whole point of, of the podcast is mm. for us to talk about it and for the people who are going through it to realize that it's pretty normal. And a lot of us have these thoughts mm. and, and to some, you know, and, and it's a spectrum, the thoughts are a spectrum, like 
a lot of times they're, like you said, when you were a teenager, you know, it's just wishing to not be here anymore. It's not actually having a plan to, to actually end your own life. Like we just, we don't want to do this anymore and wishing ourselves away. But then also what your doctor said is it's just an intrusive thought and it, it doesn't mean that it's, I mean, obviously it's serious, but it's it's not the end of the world to have these thoughts. There's nothing. Mm. We're still normal people. We're just, our brains are just having a heyday, doing their yeah. own thing because of whatever else is going on. But yeah. I also love, I think you might be the first guest who's really verbalized that they were afraid to talk to people. Like, Sure, we don't want to burden our families and burden our friends. Like that's kind of normal. But to a lot of us just kind of go from talking about having the thoughts to going to therapy. And we kind of skim over that part in between where it's like, oh, what if I tell somebody, even a professional, you know? Mm. And it was really great how you were like, what if this happens? What if this happens? What if this happens? And I'm sure those are regular thoughts for for all of us, but we don't necessarily remember that part of the experience. Yeah, so it's I'm the same really for when I brought that up. Yeah, it was the same for when I was um, first saw a therapist and and verbalized um, that I think I've got a mental health condition. Saying that to my GP at 28 was a really hard thing to do, and I'd been putting that off for for about two years prior. My my now wife had been encouraging me and encouraging me to go see someone, but I was putting it off kind of maybe some toxic masculinity was coming in. Say it's not me, it's you. Uh, my drinking's fine. Don't worry about that. I can just, you know, give it up for a week and I'll go for a few extra runs and I'll be good. But a lot of it for me was also that fear of what will someone say if I, if I said I've got a mental health condition, would they look at me differently or would they think of me differently? Would would I be locked away? Would I be taken away from the people that I love? Would I be given, you know, 10 lots of medications to take every single day and have to, to manage that and and be a man in the same in the same line of thought as well? So that was also I think fear holds us back from so many things, particularly in the mental health space. Because we just don't know what other people are going to say. And and often I say for the guys that come into my therapy clinic, I've said, I say, have you done this type of thing before? And and a lot of the guys say, no, I've never spoken about this stuff before. And I'm like, okay. And that enables me to then just really lessen the impact of therapy and just turn it more into, we're just two guys having a chat. Right. Let's, let's make it as simple as that because that's what therapy is. It's just two people chatting but there's this this stigma or, or shame that's placed on it that we're broken or that we're unworthy and and all these thoughts mm-hmm. come into our brains and and but that's just stuff that we just make up. It's, exactly, it's not, it's not the reality. Once we're actually in there doing the work, it's relieving, it's healing, it's it enables us to to stop surviving and start thriving. Yeah, it's kind of funny how you you also said at one point, um, you know being a man, you didn't do anything about it. Yes. And I think it's it's so interesting because in general, men are pretty avoidant about going to the doctor. Yep. Um, <laughs> but then at the same time, women go to the doctor more often, but then we're just brushed off. You know, mm. like they'll just be like, oh, it's hormones or, 
you know, there's always some other explanation. So it's kind of a, a, a no win situation. It feels like for a lot of people to, to go to the doctor, you know? Mm, yeah. Um, I've had that experience as well. Like, you know, I've got two doctors that I see and, and I have one that I specifically go for mental health because he gets it. He just mm -hmm. understands it. Whereas when I go to my other one and I start to talk about mental health, he, he brushes it off and say, oh, you know, just get out and do some more exercise. You'll be fine. It'll be fine. I'm like, I'm not fine because I've been living with this since I was eight years old. And it's not just about me being in the fresh air and, and drinking less and all this type of stuff. Yes, that helps. That certainly does help, but it's not the be all and end all. Actually, so having this specific person that I go to for my mental health is really beneficial because I can say anything to him and he'll get it and he will steer me in the right direction when I where I need it yeah yeah and and I think that's the thing for a lot of it is just finding the right person whether it's a doctor or a therapist or you know whoever it is it's finding the right person to talk to for you and that may take and that's the discouraging part is you know you go to one and they brush you off and you're like oh I guess it wasn't me you know I guess there you know <laughs> there's nothing wrong with me after all but there is something wrong with you and you know that yeah. And not that, you know, there's something wrong with you, but, you know, there's, there's something that needs to be dealt with and healed. Yeah. And, and it's just a matter of finding that, that person who gives you the support um, that you need in the way that you need it. Mm, absolutely. And, and that, that journey of finding that right person can be a long one, or it can be a very short one, but often we stop. And I, and I, this happened to me a few times or a, I saw one or two people and I didn't like them. So I just stopped. I just said, well, I just have to deal with it myself. But the more and more you look, um, the easier and easier it becomes. And and now I, what I love about websites for therapists and GPs as well is that often you've, you find like the about me section. So you can look at the practitioners and go, what are their personal interests? And if you're seeing them saying their personal interests are things like suicidality or men's mental health or women's mental health or children's mental health, they're the ones you want to go for as opposed to the, the generalist ones that don't really share what they're really interested in. Mm -hmm. Because if you find a practitioner who's interested in a certain line of therapy, then you're probably going to get more of a connection with them or more of a benefit with them because that's what they specialize. That's what they focus on. That's what they love to look at. And that's what I do in my, in my practice. It's around men's mental health. It's around obsessive compulsive disorder, depression, anxiety, burnout, masculinity. These are the things that I like to talk about. And so the guys that come into to my practice, they're generally the ones that want to talk about those things too. Yeah. Yeah. And I find it very interesting that, you know, in, in the olden days when I was young, uh, <laughs> you know, it was like, you just went to whatever doctor was down the street, uh, yeah. whoever was closest or, you know, whoever was accepting new patients or, you know, whatever we didn't, there wasn't a way to really know who they were and what they did and now like my daughter who's 22 before she goes to see anyone for anything like she's doing the whole web search and you know stalking them online and figuring out who they are and if they align with her before she even makes that first appointment yeah and I'm just like this is a whole a whole different way and I mean she's She's had really good luck by doing that, you know, like she, she finds people a lot faster that way by doing the, the legwork up front. Yeah. And, 
So uh, it's, I, it's, it's amazing that we have these resources now and to use them. It's really important. So it's, I always say to people looking for a therapist or a GP is to interview the staff that are there as well. So for example, a few years ago, I really wanted to start tackling the OCD because even though I'd been diagnosed, not one therapist wanted to tackle OCD. They mm. wanted to talk about depression, anxiety, and my alcohol use. They didn't want to talk about obsessive thoughts, compulsive behaviors, and, and how that impacts the body. And so I started to look around for OCD therapists, people who specialize in OCD. And I found one one that's in my local area, but there was a six-month wait list. So I, I looked around a few others and I really interviewed the administrative staff when I rang in or the receptionist and said, look, I've got OCD. I want to tackle OCD. What's your therapist like in OCD? And and a few of them would either say, we don't specialize in OCD. So I said, okay, no worries. Thank you, but I'm not looking for you. Or they'd say, oh yeah, we could probably do that. Um, here we're going to, we can set you up with this therapist. So then I would start talking about that therapist and say, okay, what's their experience with OCD? Have they seen many clients? Have they got OCD themselves? And this is where the, the receptionist would either say, yes, they their experience, or they would say, oh, they can talk about it, but they'd be under the guidance of a supervisor. And I'm like, well, I don't want that person because I want the person who I'm sitting next to in the moment to be able to give me real-time strategies for OCD, not to have to go back to their supervisor. Right. And I get that because they're learning, mm -hmm. but also when we're dealing with our mental health or physical health as well, we want people who know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's it was looking for someone who knew that they, were, they could deal with OCD in the moment. And so I decided to wait that six months on that wait list. And I would ring back every single week and say, is there an opening now? Has it been a cancellation? Can I get in sooner? And eventually that did work. And they said, yes, we've just had a cancellation. Would you like to come in next week? And I'm so glad I did that because the person I was connected with was a specialist in OCD. So we could talk openly about OCD. I can get the, the right information and the right strategies straight away. Even though it took six months to get in there, I'm so glad I waited. And, and I'm so glad I rang around and, and interviewed all these other types of clinics because it really it, if it reaffirmed in my mind that I was in the right direction. I was looking for the right person to support me. And that could be for anything. It's not necessarily OCD. It could be with your physical health, your mental health, pediatrics as well for children is, is finding those right people. And once you find them, you, you hold on to them for dear life. Yes. Yes. I've had my therapist for, I think I've been seeing him now for probably close to 15 years. Um, but initially started seeing him as a couples therapist with my ex-husband and then that stopped and I continued to see him by myself and then I moved away um and so when I would come back to visit I'd like squeeze myself into his <laughs> schedule um and I I've seen other therapists you know closer to home and and things at work but I've you know maintained my connection with him and now I'm back living in his area again which is amazing because that connection is so important. And especially the fact that he also saw my ex-husband who mm. was a mess and, you know, all, a lot of the issues I I've been dealing with since then were sort of caused by him. So the fact that he knows my ex, like it's just, it's priceless. So once you've found that person, like, yeah, hold, hold on for dear life because they are invaluable. And, um, 
it's interesting. He's kind of become the family therapist. Like my daughter would go see him sometimes. And of course, because he knew me and her father, he was like, ah, I see, I see where all of this is coming (laughs) from. And, uh, uh, my stepdaughter sees him as well. So he's just, he's like, "Mm mm-hmm. Yeah, (laughs) he's got so many insights that's really, really helpful for our families. So yeah, once you find those, those priceless people, keep them in your life, whoever they are, even if they're not professionals, you know, they're friends or family members or um, neighbors, whoever, you know, there are those, those people in your life that are there for a reason and Mm. are are meant to help you through through whatever it is. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and it's interesting because context is so important. So having your therapist who understood your your ex and your daughter and your situation is really important because they can piece together the puzzle and, and understand why certain things and happen for a reason and, and who interacts with each other in a certain way. So that's really important from an ecological systems perspective. Um, yeah, very useful. And it's the same in, in the work that I do. I'm always finding out who's who in the zoo, I say, like, who's your family, <laughs> who are your friends, where are you going in your communities? Because once we start to piece that puzzle together, we can understand how people behave and and how they interact and and what they're doing in their lives. Because when we have certain relationships in our lives that maybe uh, aren't positive, they're more, they're more in the toxic space or the negative space, they can really bring us down. So it's all around also reshaping and redesigning our social circles to to bring the best out of ourselves. And often if a therapist or a GP can piece those puzzles together, that can also support you or whoever's listening on a, on, a, on a journey for, for thriving because, you know, it's easier for them to understand the full context as opposed to just your isolated situation. Absolutely. So what advice do you have for men specifically who are struggling with their mental health and, you know, are, are going through your lived experience where they're afraid to talk about it um, and afraid of being judged and, you know, grew up where mental health was a taboo subject. Like how do you, or if you know somebody like that, is there a way to, you know, convince them to get help? (laughs) (laughs) That would be the most commonly asked question I get when I get a a referral (laughs) is, and it's usually from a a wife or a sister or a mom or. They are obviously struggling and they won't help themselves. Yes. Yes. Simon, how can I get them to see you? And I, and I, and I say, and and it's brutally honest. I say you can't. I know. Like you can't. You can't. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Exactly. And yeah. for guys, it's really tough. Like to get a guy into therapy is a really hard thing to do. And the ones that are dragged in, kicking, kicking, oh, I can't speak now, kicking and screaming, is they're the ones that they last maybe one session and they're out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? But the guys that can't that ring on their own accord and and commit to it. They're the ones who maybe have had that light bulb moment that I had when I was, you know, 28 saying now's the time to speak. And I'd say to anybody, any guy particularly or anyone, and this this applies to anybody, is just recognizing that it's not weak to speak. It doesn't make you any less of a person to to find the courage to say I'm struggling. And it it doesn't have to be around mental health. It can be maybe you're just feeling overstressed or maybe 
you've lost your job and you're just worried about the future or maybe the finances have been a bit tough. They're, they're tough worldwide at the moment. There's a lot of inflation mm-hmm. going around. And so yeah. it doesn't have to be a mental health condition. It can be stress related or it could be just uncertainty, but just recognizing that it's not weak to speak and, and to talk about what's going on, whether that's with a friend, it doesn't have to be a therapist. It could be a friend, a family member who have got, you know, their head screwed on right. Or if they, you don't have those types of people, it could be someone at a local community group that you 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 look up to and you admire as well. But if that doesn't work, your, your GP, your doc, your local doctor is a great place to start because they can do some initial assessments and work out whether or not you need to see a therapist. But you also don't need that to see a therapist. You could just contact contact a therapy clinic that someone in your area. Do what we've talked about. Check out their social media. Check out their website. If they've got a podcast like I do, check out the podcast. So then you can hear them. You can see them. You can see what they're writing and, and posting about. That's really useful. And I and in fact, so I've got clients like that who don't want to be part of the mental health system. So they come and see me in a private capacity. They just pay my fee and there's no doctors involved. There's no other people and they just want to do it. And so but you've got to have that kind of light bulb moment. And what I say to a partner or a friend or a family member who wants this man to, to go and see a therapist in their life, I just say to plant seeds. So eventually if you plant enough seeds and you water those seeds, the seeds will sprout into a beautiful flower. And so you just plant those seeds. So how, start off with conversations. How are you going today? And then they'll probably brush it off like I did, like most guys do. But eventually they might say, I'm struggling today or I'm not feeling great today or whatever. Or you could say, hey, I've checked out this Simon guy's podcast. I thought you might be interested in it. It's it's a really good podcast or for whatever reason and send it to their phone. And then they might be on their walk or at the gym or going fishing or whatever they're doing and go, yeah, I'm getting into podcasts lately. I might check this dude out. You start planting these seeds and and eventually they might hopefully have this light bulb moment where they go, okay, yeah, I've got to go talk to someone about this. And often I get those phone calls from guys where they've had that light bulb moment saying, I need to talk, but I don't know how to engage this mental health system. So then I walk them through it, for example. So I say, you can come see me in a private capacity or you can go see your GP and, and they can give you some guidance as well. In Australia, we've got some different um, streams of mental health support, whether that's through the, the the main mainstream health system or your private health system as well. We've got a few other insurance schemes that can possibly provide you that support as well. And I just talk them through it and say, if you've never done this thing before, this is the journey that I've walked. And this is the journey that many other guys have walked. Off you go. Here's the information. Knowledge is power. Mm-hmm. you know inform yourself and then go find those right people for you the right gp or the right therapist for you and then often they call me back and say i think you're the right person so off we go and do some therapy awesome i love it yeah and it's 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 very true you know you you can't make the horse drink no, <laughs> no matter how much you want them to <laughs> and and definitely not to the pub and with beer because beer and alcohol is the guy's normal way to drink and and to solve issues, but what it really does is just suppresses things. It's a it's a depressant, and so yeah, we want to direct them to water, <laughs> and have them drink the clean, good stuff. Yes, yes. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story and your wisdom, and and your perspective. It's always good to have to have different people from all over the place and from different, you know, coming, coming at 
mental health from just different, different ways. And um, yeah, it's been awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks for having me, Janet. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you today and keep up this great work because this is a hard conversation to have for so many people. So you're doing a great job. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Remember that you are loved, you are worthy, you are valuable, you are meant for more, and that it really does get better. If you are in crisis, there are numbers that you can call or text to get the help that you need. That information for Canada and the U.S. is in the description below each episode. If you are in immediate crisis, please call 911. We love you, and I hope you'll listen again.